0: Like you. There is nothing else that we can stand on that is as steady, as strong, as steadfast, and as enduring as you. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us hearts that are soft to your presence, ears that are soft to your voice, eyes that are open to see you. Father, even in this moment, we just confess that there's nothing, there's nothing, nothing fills us the way that you do, nothing that completes us the way that you do, nothing that satisfies us the way you do. We're here for you this morning to honor you with our lives, to give you a song of praise that is worthy of you. You are worthy of everything we have. So I pray that this morning you would make the way for you to us and the way for us to you really clear easy. You would break down the walls. You would break down the lies. You would bring us to yourself. We honor you this morning, Jesus. just want to give you a moment with the Lord to take the elements as you feel led so if I could just leave you with this Paul encourages us in first Corinthians 11 to examine yourselves before you take the elements and so I know for me I easily forget to take like the internal inventory So during this next song, we just want to give you the gift of time to be with the Lord and kind of go through your stuff with him. This isn't meaningless. This actually has deep, deep meaning. His body was broken for the things that break you. And his blood was spilled to cleanse you of everything. So as we take a moment to be with him, let's not pretend that we're right with God, but let him put on us his love, and his gentleness, and his care. And let's leave today having left lots and lots of stuff behind. Solution. So we remember you this morning and your sacrifice.
1: nothing but the blood of Jesus and this is all my righteousness nothing but the
2: Deserve your grace. We don't deserve the acts of love that you committed for us by freely laying your life down, being mocked and ridiculed, your body being ripped to shreds. We don't deserve the nails that were driven through your hands and your feet. And we don't deserve, Lord, the act of you taking all of our sin, past, present and future, and placing it on yourself and paying the penalty that we should have paid. But we thank you, Lord, and we shout hallelujah that you love us and that we now stand before the Father, the creator of all things, the ruler of all things as guiltless, spotless. And we thank you that you have called us to be called sons and daughters. We love you, Lord we thank you. We sing to you. We praise you. In your name, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. Oh, and kids, you are free to go.
3: Be free. You're released into your natural habitat. Oops. Good morning, everybody. My name is Doug Riggle. I'm Ministry Development Director here at Linworth Road Church. Just have a uh, great opportunity to share some announcements with you and wish you a happy Sunday. Um, If this is your first time or if this is your 501st time, we've got a uh, Connect card that's right there in front of you. If you're online, you can do it via our Bible app or you can do it on your own via the Bible app at your seat. It's a great way to connect with the church, to get prayer requests out to our pastors and leaders and to get additional information about what's going on here. So if there's something you hear me say that you want more information on, just jot it down in that card. And there are some boxes in the lobby. And if it's online, you just hit send and it's done. Um, If this is your first time here, just a special welcome to you as well. At our Welcome Center, we've got a free gift for you if you wanna stop by there on your way out the door. Uh, It's got a mug, it's got a CD with the worship band here singing. Uh, So we just thank you for being here this morning with us. So just a couple of announcements this morning. So on October 24th from 5 to 8 p.m. here at the church is our annual vision night. And it's a great time to hear about the next ministry year, celebrate what we've accomplished as a church, what God has done through our church, as well as updates on the financials and uh, all that, all that fun business stuff. Um, and then following that is a harvest party. So, put that in your calendar now, October 24th from 5 to 8 p.m. Um, you, you won't want to miss it. It's just a great time to bring everyone together. And my next announcement is looking for volunteers. So, this is something I've learned. I've been a Christian for 20, 30 something years now. I've lost track of time now, which is a good thing. Um, But I've learned that Christianity is not a spectator sport. It takes a lot of volunteers and effort for people to make this church work the way it does, the things you experience on Sunday morning. So we've got openings in two places, specifically in our technology uh, um, booth back there. We need some uh, people who can uh, learn the tech that we use here to run Sunday mornings, as well as cross crew. Um, There's just so many opportunities we, we've kind of ramped back up in our services and our, our, the way we're doing church here again, so we really could use some volunteers there. So if you've never considered it, it you don't have to do it necessarily every Sunday, there's uh, great opportunities for you to learn about that. Um, but just write down, volunteer on your Connect card, and someone will get back in touch with you. And I think I have, that's all my announcements except for one, um, as Chris comes to stage, wish him a happy birthday.
4: As my friend George said, numbers don't mean anything, right? Numbers don't mean anything. All right. I am, thank you, thank you. In these difficult days of leadership, my wife helps keep me on an even keel. I was driving, uh, actually I'd forgotten that the road that I come into church on is, I, I travel from north of Powell, I usually come down Liberty Road, avoid 315, and uh, forgotten that a sign had said, Liberty's going to be closed for 45 plus days. And so I had to do the detour right there. And, but I remembered, I'm going to at least text Louise so she'll remember, don't take liberty. And she texted me back and said, give me liberty or give me death. <laughs> I mean, that good. I mean, just on the spot. Just on the spot. It's great keeps things even killed. Well, this week I was searching for articles on persistence, and I ran across this headline that caught my eye, Americans don't die for religion anymore. Did we forget that people still do? Writer Written by Bonnie Christens, she said that while sorting through all the analysis, searching for the blame on what went wrong in Afghanistan, as she did that one insight stood out to her. An insight she wrote as both too little acknowledged and incredibly important. It came from a new book by a man named Carter Malkasian, a military advisor who spent many years in Afghanistan. What caught her eye was what Malkasian wrote on the role of religion. He wrote that the Taliban had an advantage in inspiring Afghans to fight. They cast themselves as representatives of Islam and called for resistance to foreign occupation. Actually, this slide here, let me interrupt myself. This is the Taliban studying. And if you weren't aware, the Taliban is actually extremely religious. They are very religious to the T. And here we see a picture of them in a, a very studious environment. So they cast themselves as representatives of Islam and called for resistance to foreign occupation. Together, these two ideas formed a potent mix for ordinary Afghans who tend to be devout Muslims, but not extremists. Aligned with foreign occupiers, the government mustered no similar inspiration. It could not get its supporters, even if they outnumbered the Taliban, to go to the same lengths. More Afghans were willing to serve on behalf of the government than the Taliban. But more Afghans were willing to kill or be killed for the Taliban. That edge made the difference on the battlefield. Now, that distinction, Malakazian writes, was underappreciated by American leaders and experts, himself included, and the resultant ignorance helped American occupiers believe that. Things were possible in Afghanistan, defeated the Taliban, or enabling the Afghan government to stand on its own that probably were not possible." Close quote. Now, I thought found this very intriguing on many levels, but this is the point for today's message, that underestimating the devotion or the persistence of an enemy will always get you into trouble whether you are fighting a war or a disease or just playing football. And as we jump into this letter from Jesus to our next church, we're gonna see this dynamic underestimating an enemy come into play. Now, if you're new to Linworth or here for the first time, we are going through this series called Jesus in Revelation, and we are covering the seven letters written from Jesus through the apostle John to first century churches seven of them and they exist in what is now called or what is now modern day turkey and if we can see, if you can see the map here we are on city number 3 we have done ephesus we have done smyrna and now we are doing the city of pergamum so will you stand please and follow along on your device or with your bible Revelations, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And the angel of the church in Pergamum wrote, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them With the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it." This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and be seated. All kinds of questions emerge to us from this strange language. And so what I first want to do this morning is decipher the strange language, and then we'll ask the question, so what? Here's the outline for this morning to decipher this strange language. Number one, why is Pergamum described as a place where Satan dwells? Secondly, what is the teaching of Balaam? And thirdly, what is the white stone? If we can define these things, I think we'll have some application to our church today. We pray. Pray with me as we start. Father, uh, we've already experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit through song. We've experienced the taking of the bread and the cup, coming to Lord your table where you feed and sustain us spiritually. And now we pray that you help open up our eyes to what each of us needs this morning to hear from Jesus. Father, these churches, more than anything else, needed to hear from Jesus. And Father, we tell you that's our need today as well, to hear from Jesus. Pray that each of us would have our eyes opened, our ears opened to see and to hear Jesus this morning. In his glorious name we pray, amen, amen, amen. All right, first question then. Why is Pergamum described as the place where Satan dwells? Can you imagine that descriptor on the tourism ad for Pergamum? Come to Pergamum, the capital city. See our beautiful architecture. Stroll through the shelves of our world-class library while sipping Turkish espresso. All coffee in Turkey, I understand, is basically espresso. Take a selfie by our famous temples. Do a flyover to see the famous Greek god Zeus. Ours is a city where the lights never go out. And oh, it's the place where Satan dwells. Why does Jesus refer to it as such? T. Scott Daniels helps us understand Pergamum and her hopes. It's a lengthy quote. But this background will help us understand why Jesus says what he says. He writes this, Pergamum was not as important a commercial city as Ephesus or Smyrna, but it was more important political and religious center. Because it did not have the economic benefits of other cities, the citizens decided that its life would be most blessed by orienting the city toward bringing glory to the empire. The leaders of Pergamum knew that their city could not match the glory of Rome, but it could try to become a reflection, and image of Rome on the eastern side of the empire. The hope was that when people came to Pergamum, they would know there was a powerful empire in the world because the empire's life would be reflected in the life of the city. Pergamum became one of the major seats for emperor worship. Now Pergamum was granted the authority to be the judgment seat of the east. So in essence, the city bore the sword of Rome. In honor of the emperor Diocletian, the citizens built an arena where gladiatorial games could take place. Huge feasts and festivals were held for those in authority. Graphic and violent displays were staged as a way of celebrating the power and might of Rome. Criminals of various kinds would have their hands cut off and then be thrown into the arena with wild beasts. Cheered on by mobs in attendance, the Romans toiled to find more ways to celebrate violence. The justification for such cruelty was that punishment was being enacted on the criminals. Of the seven Asian cities addressed by John, Pergamum was the one in which a faithful church was most likely to clash with the surrounding culture, which was immersed in the imperial cult. Look again at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And Daniels goes on to argue that John is referring to Pergamum as the location of Satan's throne because of the lethal combination of emperor worship and pagan practice that defined the city. Okay, so that gives you a little historical background to understand what's going on. And I gather thus from what Jesus says about Pergamum, that there was an exceptional concentration of demonic power residing there. We can imagine this was a spiritually oppressive place. Sensitive Christians likely felt it like a thick, dense fog hanging over a city when they entered into it. Many missionaries, when ministering and serving in a place where there is obvious and blatant demonic activity, had described the same sort of thing, a feeling of weight, of heaviness, of oppression. Now remember also, we learned this the first week, that John is writing from the vantage point of heaven's throne. He sees things as they really are. It is as if he has put on special glasses that enable him to see beneath the pretense of human power and glory, beneath the imperial worship. And what does he see? He sees Satan's power at war with the church. Now that war has already taken a casualty, a man named Antipas whom we don't know really anything about an early martyr who died for his faith, refusing to renounce Jesus. And through this great loss, the church has remained faithful. Maybe they remembered the words of Jesus, for Jesus anticipated times like this. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. He says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me, before others. I will disown before my Father in heaven." Now, this display of courage under pressure leads to affirming words from Jesus. And you might think, oh, that's the end of the story. That's the end of this letter. Such a church could not have anything wrong with it. But then look at that verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Such chilling words. Could you imagine Jesus saying that to Linworth? I have a few things against you. As we digest this reproach, I have to admit, I I can't wrap my heads around this. It's a mystery. How A church where people are being martyred yet has some things missing. This church is like Jekyll and Hyde. Remember Stevenson's novel about the kindly Dr. Henry Jekyll who transformed into the evil Edward Hyde? Jekyll and Hyde is the phrase we use when describing a person who appears outwardly good, but also has a shadow side. This church, commended for its courage, think about it. They withstood a frontal attack from Satan but they have left open a back door, such as the enemy slips in another way. Two weeks ago, the church in Ephesus was praised for its commitment to truth, but had lost its love. The church in Pergamum was welcoming, but it had compromised the truth. Feeling the headwinds of cultural pressure, it was accommodating. We scratch our heads wondering, how could a church with such courage and faithfulness possess this weakness? Well, that mystery leads us to the second point. What in the world is the teaching of Balaam? Again, look at verse 14. Some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam. What's this all about? Well, John is referring to an Old Testament story, hundreds of years previously. It is told in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24. Let me retell it briefly here. It is near the end of Israel's wilderness wanderings, those 40 years, and they camped near a uh, neighboring country called Moab. And Israel posed a military threat such that the king of Moab was terrified." Now, the king of Moab's name was Balak. So in desperation, Balak hired a magician named Balaam to put a curse on Israel. Now, Balaam himself is a strange mixture of good and evil, and he's hard to make sense of. He's also something of a soothsayer, for he predicts the future. Now Balaam at a minimum respected God's power and he balked he uh, didn't go quickly. He tried to get away around the king's request to enact this curse. But the king kept coming back making multiple requests. And Balaam finally relented after the Lord told him to go to Balak. In the end however, after some curious happenings involving a donkey, you'll have to read it. God prevents Balaam from issuing the curse, totally infuriating Balak. End of story? No, unfortunately not. Balaam, the soothsayer, who's not really on God's side, thought of a plan B, much more subtle and devious than the first. He advised Balak, and this is related in Numbers 31, 16. He advised Balak to go gather up the most attractive Moabite women he could find. And send them to the Israelite camp for the purpose of seducing the Israelite men into sexual immorality. And lo and behold, no curse was needed. This was actually better. Israel's warriors were led by Moabite women through their sexual immorality into worshiping Moabite gods. The compromise was sealed and the attack abated. So back to our question, what is the teaching of Balaam that has a corollary in first century Asian, first century Asian city? I believe the teaching, at least one feature of it, it was also present in the Greek city, Greek city of Corinth. I believe the feature of this teaching is that it does not matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. You see, the world at this point was influenced by Greek thought, by Platonic thought from Plato, and it taught that there was a strict division between body and spirit. This teaching says, we can do whatever we want with our bodies, we can satisfy them as we wish, and it does not impact our faith. There's a thick wall between body and between spirit. And they split their faith, thus, from any ethical implications involving, satisfying, natural or physical desires. The body is made for sex. The body was made for food. The body was made for drink. Therefore, we are free to push away any limits to our fulfillment. We can be as sexually active as we like and be Christians. We can attend the pagan festivals and take in the food sacrifice to idols because the body doesn't count for anything anyway. Our spirits are loved, our spirits are forgiven, our spirits are going to heaven, and therefore we can do whatever we like with our bodies. Now, this is not a minor or secondary issue, right? Look at verse 16. Jesus says that if you do not do a U-turn on this, those of you who practice and teach this, I will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. The sword of the mouth is the descriptor Jesus had used to introduce himself to this church. And while the sword might signify Jesus' authority over Rome and his temporal power, it certainly signifies his power to judge his own church. Notice Jesus says, I will fight against them, indicating that not everyone in the church bought into this. Yet at the same time, it was being allowed into the church. It was not being confronted. Nobody was challenging it. That is why the entire body is called to repent. Now, the problem of both practice, of this teaching of the Nicolaitans who had entered into this church of Pergamon, who were welcomed into the church and were teaching it, the problem of both practice and implicit acceptance is what draws from Jesus, even to a church that had suffered immensely, a very firm rebuke and warning. What would God have desired of the leadership of this church? It is a kind of leadership expressed in 2 Timothy 2, when Paul is giving Timothy instructions on how to confront, and yet with gentleness. Look at this. Scripture, 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant, Paul to Timothy, the leadership of the church, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to their will. Again, we see hope as we have in the other letters. We see hope in Jesus' command to repent. If the church can repent and do a U-turn, the same invitation is given to it as the other churches. Verse 17, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They have the power through the Holy Spirit to respond. What is needed for this church and our church is to hear the voice of Jesus and respond. And there's a promise for the victorious. And that leads us to our third point. What is the hidden manna and the white stone? First, The hidden manna. Again, here we are now towards the end of our text, the end of our paragraph. What is the hidden manna? Dennis Johnson points out that the manna was the bread of heaven that had nourished Israel in the desert. And Revelation portrays this church, the church's life, the church's journey in a similar way. The church is on a sojourn through a wilderness through which God sustains it, right? We look around and see our crazy, chaotic world. It's a spiritual wasteland. It sometimes feels like a toxic dump. We too are sustained by manna. Jesus took the picture even further announcing that the manna pointed to his sacrificial body in John chapter six. And though the church's circumstances our circumstances may feel like a desert, Jesus sustains us by revealing himself through his word. His word is our fruit, our bread, what nourishes and sustains us. What is the white stone with a new name on it? Well, we cannot be completely sure. But the historical context gives us a strong clue. In the Roman world, a white stone with a name written on it served as a ticket admission for certain functions such as feast in the idol temples. Now this view fits very nicely with our passage for it suggests that those who do not compromise themselves with idols will receive passage into the marriage supper of the Lamb. The great messianic feast described in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus returns for his church. But there's more. More important than the color of the stone is that it bears a name. Why a new name? Because when we believe in Christ, We become a new creation. Uh, If you get a chance to look at Isaiah 65, 15, notice the consistency of this passage with it, where the new creation is foreseen by the prophet Isaiah. You can actually look in chapter 62 and 65 as well. Conveyed in this naming, conveyed in the naming, when Jesus names us, conveyed in that naming is ownership but also intimacy. It is known only to Jesus and the receiver. It is a shared secret. You know, I have names for my wife and she has names for me that I will not share with you. (laughs) Neither publicly or one-on-one in person because they are only shared between us. There's a shared intimacy there. It is a shared secret. It is known only to Jesus and the receiver. This new name is unique, notice that, and distinct from others. It marks the bearer's new identity, their new self, recreated through Jesus. Again, Johnson wraps this up nicely by saying, to the one who holds fast his name, Jesus gives a new name to mark us as his property and to reshape our identity, to fit His perfection. Sound too good to be true? Look at Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, for those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Someone has written that names are powerful things. Even though we may not often think of them as so. But most cultures take them very seriously. And this is often reflected in their literature. In the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, we find Aslan coming into Narnia. Let's see that slide if we could, that next one. Do you remember in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe how evil pervaded the world? And the way that Lewis characterized evil was by saying it was always winter, but never Christmas. And Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ figure, when he comes into this world, and he comes into it and he speaks, he says this to the beaver. He says, peace beaver, all names will soon be restored to their proper owners. In the meantime, we will not dispute about noises. This author goes on to write that the good news is that God sees to the very heart of things and he is the ultimate namer of whom we are but a poor imitation. And one day, as Aslan promised Beaver, all names will be restored to their proper owners. Victors in Christ will receive a white stone from Jesus Seeing this, Jesus says, knowing this, Jesus says, grasping this, Jesus says, will motivate you to hold fast my name. So we've talked about why does Jesus describe Pergamum the way that he does. We've talked about what is the white stone, the hidden manna. What is the teaching of Balak or Balaam? So what? What do we do with this? What what difference does it make? Now, there's a whole host of various things that we can draw from this, and maybe you've already written down some applications as we've gone through this. There's lots here to think about more, to pray over, to discuss in your life groups. What struck me the most from this passage is how persistent Satan is, how persistent He is uh, like the passion of the Taliban. After a frontal attack on the church to take it it down failed, he didn't give up. He slips in through a back door, armed with a deceptive and destructive teaching. An alluring teaching that separated the ethics of Jesus from faith in Jesus. A teaching that allowed you to fulfill any bodily desire while suggesting it had no impact on your relationship with God. Again, I mentioned H.B. Charles last week, and again, he, he captured the diabolical nature of Satan with this pithy quote. He said, If the devil can't kill a church, he'll join it. An illustration Of this dividing of faith and ethics was told by Philip Yancey. Yancey wrote of a friend of his named Susan, a Christian who told Yancey that her husband did not measure up and she was actively looking for other men to meet her needs of intimacy. When Susan mentioned that she rose up early each day to spend an hour with the Father, I I asked, in your meetings with the Father do any moral issues come up? that might influence this pending decision about leaving your husband, Susan Bristle. That sounds like the response of a white Anglo-Saxon male. The father and I are into relationship, not morality. Relationship means being wholly supportive and standing alongside of me, not judging. Again, the separation of belief with ethics. Do you see the thinking there? any attempt to question the ethics of her behavior was met with a spiritually cloaked defensiveness, accusing Yancy of judging her. And indeed, we agree, right, that holding a prideful, self-righteous attitude is condemned by Jesus. But it is also true that with humility, the church has a responsibility to help one another marry faith in Jesus with living for Jesus. If he can't take us down, Satan does not give up. And there is lots of teaching in our day that can still take a faithful church sideways if we underestimate Satan's power. There is so much false... An inferior teaching working its way into the church these days here are just a few contemporary examples. And by the way, there's a positive correlation to all of these. So it certainly will feel I'm coming from a negative standpoint, but there's also a positive corollary to each of these. For example, if a teaching excuses racism as just the way things are, reject it. If a teaching excuses pornography as a way of releasing sexual tension outside of marriage, reject it. If a teaching excuses pornography as a way of arousal inside of marriage, reject it. If a teaching affirms acting on same-sex desires, reject it. If a teaching affirms a lifestyle way above your needs, because doesn't God bless the righteous? Reject it. If a teaching promises you a life without suffering, reject it. If a teaching places the flag, our civil government ahead of Jesus Christ crucified, reject it. If a teaching glorifies violence, reject it. If a teaching sees any human being as less than human, not made in the image of God, reject it. If a teaching teaches that utopia is possible on this side of heaven and a specific elite class or intelligentsia must lead us, reject it. If it teaches, a teaching says that all the money you can earn is exclusively yours to do whatever you want with, reject it. If a teaching teaches that all the poor are poor because of laziness, reject it. If a teaching says that greed is good for our country, so a little obsession with money won't hurt me, reject it. If a teaching says you must tell little white lies to succeed in the marketplace and says God would understand so, reject it. If a teaching says to you, if a teaching says If a teaching affirms easy divorce under the guise that God wants me to be happy above all else, reject it. If a teaching says to you, my pressure is so unique, or I deserve more, or I have suffered or served so much that I deserve some small sexual pleasures, or I am justified in getting high, reject it. If a teaching says that the baby inside of me or that the baby you helped create does not have a right to live, reject it. If a teaching inspires you to hate your enemies, or if it fuels your desires for revenge, or if it says forgiveness is weakness, reject it. Now, if I have not offended you yet, I, I could go on. <laughs> but what is the point? What is the point? Faith in Jesus leads to following the ethics of Jesus. And false teaching of all sorts and sizes seeks to separate the two. And being split in two like that creates something grotesque and monstrous in the church in the way that people see Jesus. Conversely, church, conversely, Lynn if we guard ourselves from false teaching by being part of a local church that takes the Word of God seriously and embeds it into everything that we do, we have a vision of a church where members hold one another accountable. Yet, without creating a chilly cold atmosphere because they do it with grace with humility they do it with recognition that we are all in different places in our spiritual journey some of us are veterans we should know better some of us are newer Christians and don't know better some of us are not yet Christians yes they hold one another accountable this is the vision of the church but they do it from a place of believing in one another and also recognizing one's own vulnerabilities. If you're not a part of a church, if you're a a Christian, and you're not a part of a church that aspires for this, why not? Why not? And if you think, if you are a part of, A church, or our church, and you think you can do it alone, or you think that you're above correction, then you are underestimating. In both cases, in both cases, you are underestimating the power of the enemy. You see, if together, Church Linworth, if together, if we never forget the gospel, that Jesus showed mercy on me, a sinner, Me. You. Then mercy and the admixture of mercy and justice. Balancing attention of truth and love. If we never forget the gospel, it will always find a centering point. So, on one hand, we never lapse into self-righteousness. Doctrinal police on one side are being permissive and enabling on the other. You see, Satan will seek to steer our church in one of those two directions. Self-righteousness, chilly atmosphere, doctrinal police, the church of Ephesus. Permissive, enabling, refusing to confront, refusing to challenge, Pergamum. Satan will always seek to steer us in one of those directions. A gospel-centered church matures and grows into Christ Jesus, reflecting a balance that is healthy and beautiful, not grotesque or monstrous. And when the world sees our image, they'll see Jesus. Now, you respond to this and say, man, the ethics of Jesus? Wow." They sound like, they sound like he's from a different planet. He is. He is from a different planet. He is. He's the source of life, the source of truth. If there's some gap between the ethics of Jesus and our ethics, his are not the problem. Ours are. Are you saying Jesus' ethical demands are impossible? You're halfway to the kingdom. Yes, his life and his words shatter any attempt I have of justifying myself. His life and his words shatter any endeavor of self-salvation. His life and his words make your words, I think I'll be good enough to go to heaven, sound ridiculous. That is why the beginning point is always to admit, I cannot keep his demands. I cannot justify myself and I admit my sinfulness, my lostness and my emptiness and I receive him into my life and his forgiveness that was secured for me through the cross. The good news that Jesus proclaimed is this, the presence And the availability of life in the kingdom, now and forever, through reliance on Jesus. That is the good news he came to proclaim. The presence and availability of life in the kingdom, now and forever, through reliance on Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your presence today that comes through your word and through the Holy Spirit. And now as we respond to your words, Jesus, remembering that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. As we remember your words, as we reflect on what you're saying to us this morning, As we reflect on what word you're bringing to us this morning, whether it's one of comfort or affirmation or whether it's one of challenge and even rebuke. Lord, let us respond now in song and in prayer. And may you continue to speak to us. May the Holy Spirit continue to reveal Jesus and his power and his life and his words to us. May we we welcome and we do welcome you here, Holy Spirit. We welcome you here. Father, give us the grace to yield to you. We remember the words of Paul that he said in Romans that the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, that the natural self is hostile to God, can't please God. So help us therefore, Father, to yield to your spirit in us that we might connect to you connect to one another, and connect to what's happening inside of our own hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. As we uh, sing here, you you can stand if you'd like to stand. As we sing, remember that as the service closes, there'll be some here to pray with you. And if Jesus is speaking to you this morning about something we shared, maybe some gap between your faith and ethics or Maybe you've never come to Jesus. You realize his law is impossible to meet. You want to be justified, made right before God through his promise, not through what you perform. Or maybe something else is going on this morning, some, some conflict, some loss. I know a number of you had losses this past week, terrible losses, sad losses. And uh, so, we're. At, this is a place of prayer. This is a place of connection with God. And in prayer, we we bring God into our into our very presence. I don't have the answer. I I don't have the wisdom to counsel you, but I can help bring you into God's presence, the presence of the ministering Holy Spirit. So, let's sing and pray, and and when we're done, there'll be opportunity for you to come up front and receive receive prayer. mystique of college football right is this, is the is the coach making the great speech and motivating the team it's a beautiful thing that when it comes to the church no pastor or speaker ever has to come up with the right speech all we have to do is simply remember Jesus and that's our motivation that's plenty of motivation to live sacrificially to live all out for him Again, remember, as we leave here, um, our time continues, ministry, prayer, connectedness through fellowship, sharing the word, sharing what you learned today, sharing what stood out to you, what challenged you, what comforted you. Um, Again, if you have need this morning of any kind, come up for prayer. Let us lay hands on you and bring you into the presence of the Holy Spirit for prayer.
2: Hey, Chris, you're going to murder me for doing this. But guys, it's Chris's birthday today. It's like... <laughs> so, before Chris does his amazing send-off, I think we should sing... Wait happy to steal you. the moment. <laughs> I think we should sing happy birthday Thank to him. Much. What do you guys think? Alright. Come here, buddy. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you.
4: Thank you. It was only slightly embarrassing, but thank you. (laughs) Now may the love of God, may connectedness and fellowship with the Holy Spirit and the grace and kindness of Jesus go with you. Go and serve. Amen.